text for this morning is Romans chapter 12, verse 9. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. All right. Good morning. There. Check, check. All right. Good morning. So, as we read in our long, lengthy uh, uh, text today, we have one verse to cover here, and it will be um, pretty hard-hitting, but before I do, I, I, before we dive into verse 9, I, I just want to, again, recap and, and remind us what we've been seeing in Romans. For the first 11 chapters, right, from chapter 1 to 11, Paul has given us these weighty doctrinal truths, and they're these very deep concepts, and he's done so using long sentences and big, long paragraphs. Now, in chapter 12, 9 through 21, the chapter that, that we are in now, in these verses we begin, he changes his approach, and he begins to do and write in such a style as R.C. Sproul calls it, um, uh, staccato shots, staccato shots, like just for it, those who know music, you know, staccato is da, 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 really, really quick, right? Uh, basically, he gives us these bullet points, as it were, in a PowerPoint presentation. Uh, it's kind of like he's going to give us all of these ethical commands in machine gun fashion, just one right after another. And we as God's people whose minds have been transformed by the power of God through Christ, by the gospel working in us, are to live it, to live these things out, to model these things. This is how we as believers who have received the mercy of God, as verses 1 and 2 tell us in this chapter, and then our minds are being transformed by the cross, by the gospel, by the good news that Jesus, while we were yet sinners, died in our place to give us righteousness. And that changes us. And we don't just go to church and be good and keep some kind of rules for, for the sake of that. No, we are transformed by that power. And our minds are renewed. And we do not conform to this world anymore, but we are transformed into very, the very image of Christ. And now Paul's showing us what that looks like in all of these short staccato shots of command that we are to live, he's showing us. Basically, this passage, this passage of Scripture, verses 9 through 21 in Romans 12, is a mini Sermon on the Mount. Paul was not there when Jesus gave the Sermon on the Mount, but Paul rehearses most of what Jesus said there in this chapter. And so, it all begins <laughs> with love. The idea here is that we're to live differently, but how do we do it? Well, it begins with love. And so this reoccurring theme of Paul's is seen throughout all of his writings. He, he, he talks about love in Ephesians. He talks about love in 1 Corinthians, especially chapter 13, the famous love chapter. He talks about love here in Romans. Let's just look back at Ephesians 4, 1 through 2 before we jump in. He said this to the church. He said, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you, to walk in a manner or live in a way worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, forbearing with one another in love. And so the key there, again, is love was not just tacked on at the end. Love is the very glue that holds all those other things together. Love is the very power source by which we can bear each other. It's hard to bear one another as humans. It's tough. We, we, we are sometimes, right? Drive each other nuts. And that's why Paul keeps saying to the church over and over in his epistles, bear with one another. Be patient. Live in humility with each other. 
and gentleness. And the only way to do that is the love of God working out in us. And so genuine love is such a vital part of what Paul talks about. And so today, verse 9, I didn't want to go any further. Verse 9 um, talks about this when he begins all of these different ways that we're supposed to be living. He starts with first and foremost, love. Verse 9, let love be genuine. We'll stop there. We will finish the rest of this verse, but listen to the beginning of it. It's so important. Let love be genuine. Genuine. It's, it's the opposite of fake and phony, right? Genuine, authentic, sincere. In the, in the Greek, that word for genuine is upokrites, hypocrites, where we get the word hypocrite, right? That is false. That's somebody who pretends. A hypocrite is one who pretends. As a matter of fact, it's the word that the Greeks use for an actor, you're pretending to be something you're not. That's when you play a role. And so we, in this verse, are to be genuine or anupakritos, not a hypocrite. The opposite of one who's playing a role or wearing a mask or pretending to be something you're not. It's a person who is without pretense. He's, he's telling us, let your love be without pretense. Let it be sincere. And again, there's that, that folk etymology of where we get the word sincere from the Latin word sine sera, which some would say means without wax. The reason they would use that is the etymology of the word sincere, without wax, is it goes back to the Greek merchants who were not sincere. <laughs> they would uh, do a nice artwork, they would make a statue or some kind of, of, of plaster of, of either a person or, or whatever, and they'd sell it, right? But it, was, it, wasn't, it wasn't flawless. It was cracked. Pieces maybe have holes in it. And they would take wax and, and put a veneer finish of wax over and plug the holes with wax and then finish it with a little veneer of some kind of paint. And then they would sell it as whole. This is, this is good. People would buy it, then they'd get home and put it out in the front yard there in, in the Middle East, and the hot sun would begin to bake it, and, and the arm would fall off. And they'd say, what in the world? And they'd see the wax, and they'd see the, the, the cracks that were, that when the wax melted away, they realized, I've been, I've been bamboozled. That's another Greek word for I've been taken advantage of, right? <laughs> they, they, these guys lied to me. They told me this was a great piece of modern art, or, or, or this statue was good. And so what merchants would do is they would sign, they put a sign on their artwork and on their, their merchant, their, their wares, that would say, sincere, without wax, affirming that this is truly, what you see is what you get. And that's what Paul's saying here. When it comes to loving each other as Christians in the church, what you see is what you get, right? We need to be real, genuine, sincere, in our love, not just some veneer. And this is the thing that we really have to look for, right? Because a veneer of pleasantness and niceness is our temptation, right? The veneer of niceness. Our culture is about niceness. The culture of niceness is poisoning our world, really. It's a false veneer of be nice, right? Be, be pleasant. And, and the problem with that when we have a veneer of niceness and, and pleasantness, it can easily cover up the bitterness 
right? The, 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 the spirit of gossip that's really in our hearts about somebody. You know, it's the idea of smiling at somebody, shaking their hand, patting them on the back the whole time just so you can see a spot to stick the knife. That's, that's kind of what Paul's talking. That, that's what that's what happens in a culture where this veneer of oh, I'm so I'm always friendly, always I always so pleasant. Oh, I really hate that that dress you're wearing. I really hate that you always say this. Y'all, you, you laugh so loud all the time. But I'm just saying, folks. We're just we as humans. We have these thoughts in our hearts about people we judge, but we're so pleasant <laughs> as as we do it. And Paul's saying genuine love is what we need. Now, hang with me today. This message is not easy. But notice the rest of what it means then. How do we get rid of the veneer? Again, we don't want to develop a culture in our church where, where tough love is absent. And that, that's what happens. That's the temptation, right? No one confronts problems. No one actually tells the truth. That's the temptation. That's the, that's the problem that develops in a culture that just puts a veneer of kindness and pleasantries out there. That's not sincere love, folks. Paul says, let your love be genuine. And so, look at the rest of that verse. This is what we must have. Let love be genuine. And now he defines genuine love. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. The word abhor, it's so strange. It's the word hate. <laughs> this is what it is. It's what it means. It's so strange to have the word love, the command to love, followed directly by the word hate. But that's what we have here. Matter of fact, the word abhor is one of the strongest words to, to, for hate found in all of the Bible. So Paul doesn't just use a word that talks about, well, you know, dislike something or, you know, not be real fond of something. No, he uses the strongest language of hatred for something. Abhor what is evil. We are to hate evil. Why? Because God hates evil. God hates evil evil why folks here it is we don't hate evil because we don't see evil for what it really is we need to see evil for what it is evil is a direct assault on the very character and the holiness of god himself evil is a direct assault on the very character and holiness of god the god who we purport to love with all of our heart, soul, mind, and body. So we should hate that which attacks his virtue, his character, his holiness. And he, he doesn't stop there, though. He get, that's the negative part of the command, but now the positive is hold fast to what is good. Hold fast to what is good. Kolao. Me, that, that hold fast, literally to join, to associate with that which is good, to promote, to uplift that which is good and righteous and holy. That's the idea. So we are to hate what is evil and to love and to, 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 to cling to 
and to join and to be affiliated with that which is good. So true love calls out evil. This is what Paul is telling us. Let your love be genuine. What kind of love is that, Paul? What is genuine love? It's a love that calls out evil in someone, but also acknowledges the good and intensifies and encourages us to goodness, holiness, sanctification, becoming more like, like Christ. And so it's important. So, so, so that is vital, folks, that Paul does this for us. That he literally defines genuine love for us here. He, he takes, he, what, he, what he does by using that, that, that dichotomy, that, that love and hate, that, 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 that hate and promotion, hate of evil, but promotion of good. It is a huge favor there. By, by taking the definition of true love out of our hands and placing it smack dab in the middle of God's moral order. Do you see that? The definition of genuine love is out of our hands, folks, and it's right in the middle of God's perfection, holiness, and moral order. That's what Paul is telling us. Here, here's, the, here's, here's what's so vital about that. We, as, as human beings, driven by a heart that is deceitful, <laughs> follow your heart. No! The heart is deceitful above all things, the Bible says, and desperately wicked. Who can understand it? None of us. All of us, folks, have, have, have wound up in a heap of trouble following our hearts. So what, what we see here is normally we let our emotions get in the way when it comes to showing genuine love. That's what this text is all about. We let our emotions and our affections and our, quote, even love for others get in the way of genuinely loving them. That's what Paul's saying here. We cannot let our hearts determine what true love is. That's what Paul's showing us. I, I, this is the hardest part of this message this morning, but this is what we all need to be reminded of in our culture and in our churches the feelings we have for a person can distort our view of good and evil, folks. The feelings that we have, the emotions that we have about people can distort our view of what is good and what is evil. And we are seeing it every day in our world, in the world and in the church. Think about this. This is not new. This is just human nature. This is the way we are as humans. <laughs> what we feel determines what we then decide is good or evil. Not what God says is good and evil, then that determines how we feel about something. No, we feel about something first, and then we decide if it's good <laughs> or evil. You, you, you following? Our song lyrics tell us this, right? If you're an alien floating, oh, I forget that analogy, but if you're listening into our world and you're listening to our airwaves and if you listen to our songs, <laughs> these lyrics, Luther Ingram sang a song in 1972 and, and, and Barbara Mandrell released it in 1978, became big hits both times, same song, had this line, if loving you is wrong, I don't want to be right. Remember that? Song was about just explicitly adultery. 
explicitly the husband saying, yeah, I'm a father, I got kids, uh, I know this is wrong, oh, but if loving you, babe, is wrong, I don't want to be right. <laughs> and it just goes on and on, just reiterating that mantra into our minds. If, if what we feel so strongly in our emotions about makes us happy, then it's, it doesn't matter if it's right or wrong. Because if loving you is right, I don't want to be wrong. What about Debbie Boone, her big hit, You Light Up My Life? Line in that song says, it can't be wrong when it feels so right. And, and, and these lyrics are saying that love somehow supersedes right and wrong. That's what they're saying. My emotional feeling of love that I feel supersedes whether or not something is right or wrong. I mean, you see the danger in this. All of us are susceptible to this, folks. And this is what Paul is dealing with here when he's talking about genuine love. We've all been duped into a false love, a love dictated by our own deceitful heart. But God is saying genuine love is not based on what you feel. It's based on God's moral truth, believe it or not. Is something right or is something wrong? And are we willing to stand up and tell people that that's genuine love? Man, I tell you, it's, it's, it's hard in our culture. And the, the example is going to be one that some are going to say, you're just jumping on the bandwagon. But this is our culture, folks. This is where we're all living right now. This is what we're coming up against. I mean, if we have a family member who, or a friend or coworker who identifies as a, with the LGBTQ community, we many times, oftentimes, are tempted to, to care more about making them feel comfortable and affirmed than we are about honoring God and His truth. And that is a hard truth for our culture today, but this is the, this is the genuine truth. We're, we're tempted <laughs> to care more about people's feelings and what they think than what the holy God of heaven thinks. I mean, we're told by some that for a Christian, not to attend a gay wedding is unloving and sending a message of hate. These are things we battle with, folks. These are questions that we as Christians have to, to deal with. We hear things like this, to not affirm my, my transgender child is hateful and may even lead to their death. I mean, you've heard this quote, right? Would you rather have a living son or a dead daughter? That's what the atheistic therapist will, will ask. Saying again, it, all that matters is that you affirm that child. That's all, whatever they want. They want to mutilate themselves, hey. You've got to affirm that because that's, it's not loving if you don't do that. It's not loving if you don't go celebrate something that God says is an abomination in his sight. It's, an, it's, it's, it's hatred for you to go, to not go as a Christian, to a celebration where two people celebrate doing an act that is called sin in the Bible that actually will send them to hell along with all sin, and yet to celebrate that. That's hatred. Concerning that one question, would you rather have a living son or a, a dead daughter, I, I like what Rosaria Butterfield said about this in her book, Five Lies of Our Anti-Christian Age. She said, so when the atheistic therapist asked, 
asks, if you want a living son or a dead daughter, the answer is that all Christians want our children to be dead to sin and alive to Christ. You see, this is truth governing our feelings. When we look at the eternal truth of our children or our niece or our nephews or our neighbors and friends, it's bigger. It's bigger than this temporary moment of them feeling happy about themselves. It's bigger than that. And genuine love, Paul is saying, is to abhor evil and to promote that which is good in the lives of all those around us, including ourselves, but in the lives of others. So genuine love, genuine love says, I want to see people basking in the genuine love of a heavenly father. That's what we want people to see, ultimately, right? Christians must be concerned, folks, with love and truth, not just emotional affirmation of good feelings. But we must be concerned with love and truth. And a love that is afraid to confront that which is directly opposed to God's morality, is not true love. It's not true love, folks. It's actually selfish in many ways. We're afraid to be uncomfortable ourselves. And then again, it's this false idea of, I just want to make people happy. We just want to make them comfortable now. We just want to keep affirming them. And yet, true love would say, no, I want to love them with the eternal love of God which will confront their sin for their good. 1 Corinthians 6.9 is one of the most loving and truthful passages. 1 Corinthians 6.9-11. Many complained it sounds hateful and hard, but yet we see both truth and great love. Notice this. And this guides us, by the way, as Christians in what I'm saying. This is the principle behind this tough love, if you will. This idea to say, man, I love you too much not to warn you. Paul says, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Do you not know it's like Paul saying, do you not know that your daughter will spend eternity in hell? That your neighbor, your friend, will spend eternity under the wrath of a holy God? Do you not know that that's real? Do, do you not know this? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy... That's that guy who works so hard for the money. He never sees his family. Greedy. Drunkards. Revilers. Swindlers. Those who lie and deceive for greedy business gain. None of them will inherit the kingdom of God. But here it is, folks. Here's the good the love of that verse. And such were some of you, but, but 
somebody had the grace to confront you in your sin and show you the good news that while you were yet sinners, Christ died for you to take away that sin and to replace it with his righteousness. Such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Truth and love. That's our message, folks. That's our message. We just need to get back to the basics of what love is. We need to understand the basics of love and not allow the world to define love for us or allow a deceitful heart or our own emotions to define love, but let us allow love to define love. What do I mean? Look at 1 John 4, 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. God is love. Love is not its own entity living on its own out here that was just sprung into being. No, God is love. Love only just because it is God. So God defines love. God defines love. And any love that we have, we've received from God, it said. Love is from God. God is love, and therefore love is from Him. And look at 1 John 4, 19. We love because He first loved us. So any genuine love that any human being ever exhibits is not their own doing. It's God's love through them. We love because He loved us. Do you see that? So, 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 so God created us. And here it is, here it is, here it is. Here's the, these are the basics of love. God is love. God gives us love. And here, here it is. And he created us to aim that love back at him first and foremost. He created us to love him. Matthew twenty two twenty three. Jesus is approached by a Pharisee to say, what about these commandments? And, and all the commandments, what is the, the most important? But when the Pharisee heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he, Jesus, answered him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. Do you see that, folks? And this is what we're missing as human beings when it comes to love. We miss the basics of it. The basics of love is this. I must first and foremost have an upward love for God. That's why I was created. Our love must be first for God, then, and only then, it can properly be administered to those around us. You've got to see this. The problem, listen, the problem in our culture is that many professing Christians don't truly love God. 
They don't truly love God with all their heart, all their heart, all their soul, all their mind. You hear what that is? That's every part of your, every inch of, every fiber of your being. Every molecule in your being must be pointed toward God first and foremost. That's impossible for us. That's why he gives us the love to do it. And yet that's how we should be living in oriented, upward. And the problem is we don't truly love God with all of our heart. We're more concerned about what people think. We're more, we care more about what people think than we do about what God thinks. Therefore, we love people more than God. We idolize people more than God. We are people pleasers. And it's natural for human beings to be people pleasers rather than God pleasers. And that is probably the number one sin of all of us. We are people pleasers rather than God pleasers. We make idols of ourselves and everybody else. And genuine love, Paul says, tears that all down. We love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and body upward so that we can effectively love outward. And that's what Jesus went on to say in that commandment. He said, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and and body. This is the great and first commandment. And second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commands depend all the law. So that's, the, that's it. We love God with all of our heart, soul, mind. That's upward. That's first. That's our first priority. Only then, if I'm loving upward, can I love my wife outward. Do you see that? I have to love God with all of my heart, soul, mind, and body. He then transforms me. He reveals my sin. He uncovers my selfishness, my, my greed, my envy, whatever, my anger. He uncovers all of that. Then I repent before him. I love him. And now I can love and forgive my wife, and my children, and my co-workers, and my friends. But the problem again, again is this. We're men-pleasers, not God-pleasers. We think it's our job. We think it's our job to make people feel happy about themselves rather than drive them to be holy before God. It is not the church's job, it is not Christian's job to make people feel happy about themselves. It is our job to call people to be holy. To see the importance of that, to be holy, to be right before God. So this new gospel that is going out, this new gospel of happiness and good feelings is permeated, right? We want to meet everybody's felt needs so they feel good about themselves and and happy. We missed the point. J.I. Packer said it like this. He said, one way of stating the difference between the new feel-good gospel and the old gospel is to say that it, the new feel-good gospel, is too exclusively concerned with being helpful to man, bringing peace, comfort, happiness, satisfaction, and too little concerned with glorifying God. Do you see that? When we as a people focus on what God intended us to be and do. He made us to bring Him glory. He made us to love Him with all of our hearts, to focus on Him. When we do that, these other things will take care of themselves, folks. Relationships and, 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 and all of the pain and the sorrow and the suffering and the sin. Folks, when we make it 
our priority to glorify God with all of our heart and we love him with all of our heart, he transforms us and things are changed. It's Matthew 6.33, but seek ye first the happiness of everybody. No, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And then all these other things, they'll be added. What, what things? Everything Paul just mentioned before that, a place to live, food to eat, clothes to wear, everything we need in life. He said, don't worry like the Gentiles do about those things and just always scurry about about that. Make your number one priority God's righteousness. Abhorring that which is evil and promoting that which is good. And all these other things will be added unto you. Conclusion, and we're finished. <sighs> Genuine love is first expressed upward and outward, then outward. First upward, then outward. That's what I want us to leave here with. Genuine love can only begin when we as believers seek God first and foremost with all of our heart, soul, mind, and body. We pant, like David said, I pant for, my soul pants for you, God, like the deer pants for water at the water brook. I thirst for you. I thirst for you. I hunger for you. I desire you above all else. And that is my first and foremost attention, reading your words, seeing the glories of your works and your majesty. And as I see that and I bask in that, your Holy Spirit transforms me. And I'm not conformed to this temporal, temporary, silly world full of trinkets that fade away. I am now consumed with that which is eternal. It will never fade away. And I'm changed. And now I can love other people genuinely. I mean, love for, for, for God with all your heart, soul, mind causes our mind to be transformed, right? And now I can love my neighbor as myself. That's what the command said, right? Genuine love loves God with all your heart, soul, mind, and body, and it loves your neighbor as yourself. Now let's look at this. Very quick, very quick here. How are you loving yourself? What are you doing good for yourself? In the context of what Paul just said, it's not pampering yourself, going to the spa, having your nails pedicured. Is that the word pedicure for the nail? No, toenails, I guess. I don't know, but you know what I'm saying. All these nice things. I'm not saying you can't do those things. I'm just saying that that's not what it's all about. How do you love yourself to the fullest? You love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Do you see that? The way that we love ourselves effectively is by loving God with all of our heart, soul, mind. That's what I do for myself. I love God. And then the way I love my neighbor effectively is I want my neighbor to love God. The way I love God. That's how I love my neighbor is myself. My whole purpose in loving them and being with them and, and, and talking to them, yes, is to give them ultimate good, not just temporary affirmation, but ultimate eternal good. And nothing is better than knowing the love of our Heavenly Father. Nothing is better than being the prodigal son who's out in the pig pens all of his life thinking he knew better. Spending his money on women and wine and partying and all the temporary things this world can give him. And then find the, finds himself in the pig pen. That's where we all find ourselves left to ourselves. And we've got hundreds of people smiling in the pig pen with a veneer, a false veneer of, I'm, I'm fine. And yet inside their heart, they're crying out, please help me. 
I'm in the pig pen of sin. I'm in the pig pen of despair. I'm lonely. I'm afraid. I have no hope. Folks, if we love people, what we want to give them is not affirming them in the pig pen. We don't want to say that's normal, that's good. Stay in the pig pen. What we want them to see is the glory of that prodigal son who walks toward his father. And as he gets near his father, his father runs to him and he takes him in his arms and he kills the fatted calf and he has a celebration. He gives him a new robe and a ring on his finger. And he says, this is my son who was dead and is now alive, who is lost and is now found. Folks, that's the gospel. That's, what we're, that's how we love people. We love them by telling them the truth of what sin is and the glory of the goodness of God and what can be theirs through the gospel. Let us genuinely love each other, folks. Love our neighbors, yes. But ultimately, we want to love each other, right? Let's help each other. As Paul says, first and foremost, this text is about us as believers. Let your love be genuine for each other. Let our love be honest with each other. That means we're going to be honest enough to call out sin in each other's lives. And, and yes, gentleness, but yet be honest. Why? To bring the good. We're to, we're, to, we're to say, look, this is hurting you. This is not helping. This will. This is good. This is bad. This is good. That's a simple way to put it, right? But the idea is let's, tr- let's help each other trade up, in a sense. Let's help each other trade the gossip, the bitter tongue, for a tongue that edifies. That's what we're talking about here. Let, let, let's love each other genuinely enough and help each other trade the anger and the bitterness for patience and forbearing and gentleness with each other. I mean, that takes solid language. That takes confrontation, yes, but that's genuine love. And the result is good. The result is good, right? Dads, let's challenge each other to trade in our absenteeism, our unengaged attitudes, and let's be dads who are intentional. But it takes some confrontation for that, right? But that's genuine love. And that's what we have to pray for. God, give us the grace to truly love you with all my heart, soul, and mind so that I can truly love outward, my neighbor, and draw them to your goodness. And folks, we see this in communion, right? Think about that, communion. This that we're about to do as God's people, this, this commemoration meal, this, this act of fellowship with Christ. Think about it. It points first to our sin. The reason we even see this meal is because Christ was crushed for our sin. So blatantly, the first thing communion preaches to us and points to is the reality and horrificness of our sin. Our sin was so horrific it took the precious blood of Christ to make atonement for it. But it also then points us to Christ and His righteousness. It gives us all the opportunity to come and taste and see that the Lord is good. He is good. He took bread the the night He was betrayed. He, He said, this is my body broken for you. And as often as you eat this, do that in remembrance of me. Realize that it took my crushed body in your place to take away your unrighteousness. 
And then he took the cup and he said, this cup represents the new covenant in my blood. This promise that God made that even though you are sinful and you deserve my wrath and your blood needs to flow under my wrath, the new covenant says, but I have sent a lamb to take your place, the perfect lamb of God, Christ. So his blood is substituted for your blood. And as often as you drink this cup, you do that in remembrance of me. So at this time, I invite all of us who know Jesus Christ and love him and love his church to come, receive, rejoice, and remember together what Christ has given us together at his table.